Well, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to Nehemiah chapter 7. We'll be reading, well, we'll be, we'll be going through two chapters today, and so that's a whole bunch of text, and we're not going to read it all because of that. We will dip into various parts of it here and there, but just to refresh our memories, or if you're new, the letter of Nehemiah, which on the tail end of Ezra, is a history of the first hundred years or so of Israel returning back to Jerusalem after they were in exile into foreign nations. God had brought them back to the city that used to be the glory of Israel, the place where God's name dwelt, but it was in ruins. And so these hundred years are about rebuilding and about renewal. And so that's why we're looking at it today, because it points to the renewal of God's people today, uh, which we know as His church. And so we're going to consider two chapters, 7 and 8, and uh, drop into distinct events that happen and learn from them. I've titled this message, The Joy of the Lord is Your Strength, because that comes from chapter 8, verse 10 where Nehemiah says to the people, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's a progression in what we'll be looking at today, that it begins with what seems like a mundane record-keeping of the people, but it ends with all the people rejoicing. And it points to the natural progression of the person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. God's intention for us is joy, and joy is the product of a journey. So we'll be talking about that road to discovering joy this morning. Um, first, before we attempt that, let me just pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, the angel on the day Christ was born said, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. And open our eyes to it again this morning. We ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to receive what you have for us in these chapters. That we might go our way rejoicing in the right things, the eternal things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin by reading Nehemiah 7, 5 through 7. Speaking from his, his memoirs of the time, Nehemiah said this, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it the following things. These were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rahamiah, Naamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, Bena. And then begins a long list of the number of the men of the people of Israel, which continues for almost 70 more verses to the end of chapter 7. 
If we were to continue reading, we would learn the names of each family line of the people of Israel and how many from that line came out of captivity then made the journey to the towns around Jerusalem. There'd be family names like Parash and Era and Elam and a bunch more. Specifically highlighted were the family lines of the priests, the Levites, the temple servants. These are all the people that were appointed in the law of Moses to go into the temple to serve the worship life of the community. Now, why is all this detail here? Almost 70 verses of names and numbers. In fact, why is all this detail here again? Because Nehemiah is literally reading from Ezra chapter 2. He had the first edition of Ezra 2. Because 90 years beforehand, when the Jewish people first returned out of captivity, they were very careful to record the names of who had made the journey to Jerusalem. They wrote Ezra chapter 2, which Nehemiah calls the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And he's reading from it. Why is he doing that? Why is he pulling out, out this old document and going through all these names? That brings us to the first event on our journey towards joy this morning. And we can capture it with the word enrollment. Enrollment. That's the word for why he gathered the people and read from the book of genealogy. Verse 5 says the people, that the people might be enrolled by genealogy. Another word for enrollment is membership. It's a word used to describe who belongs, who's in and who's out. And in this case, Nehemiah is checking the records to find out who has membership in the people of Israel. Who's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who's a descendant of those who came at the first back to Jerusalem, who were the people of Israel? This book of genealogy is how they're going to know. Now, what's the occasion that prompted this enrollment? What is the occasion? Well, 90 years passed before that, since the book of genealogy was written, and the returned exiles have rebuilt the altar for sacrifices. They've rebuilt the temple for worship. Just days before that, they've rebuilt the city wall for protection. But the one thing that hasn't been rebuilt is the houses. Nobody lives in the city yet. They all live in the outer-lying regions out in the countryside. But the Lord didn't bring the exiles back to Jerusalem just to rebuild ancient ruins and make it into a tourist attraction. I wonder what life was like way back then. Oh, there's a wall, there's a temple. That wasn't why He brought them back. Though The Lord wanted His people to live there. This was a city where God chose His name to be made known among His people. And so now that the wall is complete, it's time for the people of Israel to move back in. But how do you know who is a member of the people of Israel? Who has a right to live in the city of God? Answer, you check their family names against the book of the genealogy. 
of those who came up with the first. If your name is in the book, you qualify to live with God in his city, which is Jerusalem in this case. And in chapter 11, which we'll get to much later, we'll see them beginning to move back in. There's actually a lottery of sorts. One out of ten gets to come back. Now here's how this relates to us this morning. The question for us is, how do you know who is a member of God's people today? Who has the right to live in what Revelation 21 calls the holy city, the new Jerusalem? Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the eternal city, the forever dwelling place of God with man in peace and freedom from all troubles. What credentials do we need to show that we belong there? We might think it has to do with the moral quality of our lives that that's what gives us membership, that's what enrolls us, makes us fit for this eternal dwelling. If you've tried to do your best, if your good outweighs the bad in your life, then surely God would say, you belong. Welcome into this city. But if that were the case, then our sense of security rises and falls by how we think we're doing day by day. Am I having a good day? I feel like I belong. Am I having a bad day? I feel like I don't belong. But the gospel gives us better news than that. The gospel says membership as one of God's people is not tied to the moral quality of your life. It is tied only to trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It starts with the assumption that we are all bad people in ourselves. That no one is good enough to live in God's eternal city. We all have sin. We are all guilty of things that disqualify us from membership as His people. So God has made it possible for bad people to belong in His city. He sent his Son, Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, born on Christmas Day to rescue us from our sins. Jesus lived the perfect life and then died on a cross to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. He bears our guilt and our punishment, and we receive his perfect record. We're forgiven everything, counted blameless in God's sight, even though our lives will still be filled with many failures. And this exchange of His perfection for our sin happens through one simple thing, that we believe in Him as our sin-bearer, as our Savior. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's what Peter said to his jailer who was holding him captive. If you trust in Christ, you are a member of God's people. You belong in the new Jerusalem. Your name is written in God's book of genealogy, which is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And your name will never be erased from there. That's good news. I hope you've received it in your life. 
I hope you believe that news. Because that and that only is how we know we belong in God's favor forever. Let's return to Nehemiah and continue to follow the story, which is also the story of every believer in Christ. The second event in our journey towards joy is in Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8. Let's read that text. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mathathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah on his right hand. And Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. <clears throat> now, what is this gathering? Well, at the end of chapter 7, it says that when the seventh month had come, the people were in their towns. So this is in the seventh month of the year. The seventh month of the Jewish calendar. That's not July, like ours is. Seventh month was, was September into October. It was the end of the harvest season and also the high point of the year for the Jews because it was filled with all sorts of national holidays. It was like the end of the year for us when we have like Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. Like everybody's looking forward to the most wonderful time of the year, right? It's December. Uh, well, they had that feeling about the seventh month. This is where a lot of big things happen. This was an important time of celebration. It's in this month that everything happens in chapters 8 through 10. And it begins with this gathering of all the people on the first day of the seventh month. This was a gathering that was prescribed in the law of Moses in Leviticus 23:24, which says, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. We'll talk more about that holy day in the next passage, but at this point, 
What's brought to our attention is captured, is captured with a word, understanding. Understanding. Four times in these eight verses, we hear the word understand or understood. That is, understanding of God's word. This celebration, this day, includes perhaps a very unique early morning to midday uh, reading of the law and the explanation, but it was a day set aside to give their attention to God, to rest, and to give their attention to God, and that's what they're doing. And what we see here so often is this word understand. It was so the people could understand the word that they were hearing. The road to joy runs through understanding God's word. Let's just picture the scene here for a moment. You got Ezra the scribe. The teacher of the law of Moses, he makes his first reappearance here in the book of Nehemiah. He had arrived 13 years earlier, and he was still there teaching. And he was asked to bring the book of the law of Moses to this national gathering. Bring the book, they said to him. We, we want to hear from the book. <laughs> we want to hear God's word read to us. It was the people who asked Ezra to do it. Nobody was forcing this on them. They wanted to hear it. It says the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They weren't bored. They weren't distracted. They weren't yawning and thinking about lunch. This is a picture of people hungry to hear God's word and hungry to understand it. So the Lord provides His Word and teachers of that Word. Ezra and 13 other guys stand on this raised platform, and they read from it. They read the book of the law from that platform while people listen. There's 13 more guys who are Levites, teachers in their own right, and they're spread out amongst the crowd as helpers to help them make sure they got that right, that they heard that right. And what does it mean? So they're out there. There's all these teachers. Now, why is this important in the story of the Jews in Jerusalem? That they should have this word read, and that it should be so important that they understand it. Well, it's because God's purpose for Israel was not just to have His people physically gathered into the city. It wasn't just because Jerusalem was a better place to live than Babylon. God's purpose was for them to have a relationship with Him. It was to have people who know Him, who understand His Word, which reveals to us His amazing and soul-satisfying awesomeness. It's in His Word that we read about God's justice and mercy, His wrath and His love, His holiness, and yet also His compassion to the unholy like us. It's where we learn about His forgiveness and His help and where life comes from. God has revealed Himself in His Word, and He would have us understand it so that we can have a relationship with Him and walk in His ways. The people of Israel on that day, they were hungry for God's Word. Hungry to understand. They wanted to know their God. And their hunger was satisfied with understanding. 
The Lord wants the same thing today for believers in Christ. He wants us to hunger for His Word so that we can know Him. He wants to satisfy the, the souls of everyone who has the attitude, bring me the book. <laughs> bring the book. I want to hear from the book. And He hasn't left it up to us to understand it by ourselves. Just like the assembly in Jerusalem on that day, God has provided helpers to understand His Word. The most important helper is the Holy Spirit of God Himself, who dwells in every believer. Paul said of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. God is His own interpreter of His Scriptures. And He generously provides the Holy Spirit to instruct us. We can't truly understand God without God's help. So He provides His Spirit that we might understand. And that's why you can be confident that if you come hungry to know God, if your ears are attentive to His Word, you will learn of Him when you open your Bibles, when you have your devotional time. You can be expectant that He intends to reveal Himself to you. He says in Isaiah 66, 2, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God will satisfy the humble soul who trembles at His word with reverence. He loves to reveal Himself to the hungry soul. But He provides other helpers as well. Just like the 13 guys moving around in the crowd, positioned here and there in the gathering, who were helping them to make sure they heard it clearly and to give the sense of the word, <clears throat> He provides pastors, He provides teachers to do what those men did, which is to read from the book, from the law of God, clearly and give the sense so that the people might understand the reading. And that's what I'm doing right now. It's why we have preaching of God's Word every Sunday. You wouldn't be served if we just got up here and gave you our thoughts for the day. You know, I woke up this morning and I was thinking about this or that. I just wanted to share that with you. And now let's go and be happy. You know, that's, you don't need our thoughts. But you do need God's thoughts. We need God's thoughts. And so He gives us teachers, pastors, to teach and help make sure we got it clearly and understand the sense all underneath the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. This is how the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, to quote from Colossians 3.10. It's how we get to know God in the full range of His magnificence. It's how we get to know His good and perfect will for us. It's how we get hope and comfort and encouragement in His promises. It's how we get to know Christ is our greatest treasure through His Word. God's Word is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. 
It's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32. Those who are hungry for it will get understanding. So, do you hunger to understand God's Word? That's a question for us today. Do you hunger for it? If you do, then as you're hearing it, as you're reading it, you're being renewed in knowledge after the image of your Creator. Maybe not as quickly as you'd like. (laughs) Maybe not discernible to you. But God's Word will not return empty. It will accomplish that which He intended for it. And as it's going through your mind and into your heart, and you have this submissive, humble, receptive spirit, oh, He's renewing you. The inner man is being changed from one degree of glory to another. That's happening, though it's not always perceptive to us. And if you're not hungry for God's Word, then something's blocking that hunger. Or maybe it's better to say, you're probably feeding on something else that is much less healthy and much less satisfying. Maybe it's the many hours you're spending on your electronic devices, downloading a flood of content from our secular culture. Now, there's certainly a place for checking the news and for checking up on your friends through social media and watching entertainment, but they don't have the life-giving quality of God's Word. The Bible is like a -a once-in-a-lifetime dinner at the greatest restaurant on earth, except that you can eat there every day. But the content of our culture is more like potato chips. Tastes good, but you can't live on potato chips. And if you feast on potato chips too much, it dulls your hunger for the best dinner on earth. If you want a deeper relationship with God, if you want deeper understanding of God, eat more of the good stuff and less of the potato chips. It's not rocket science. (laughs) Go to the feast of God's Word every day. Satisfy your soul there, and then your screen time will find its proper but lesser place in your life. The main course is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, as Paul said in Philippians. This brings us to the last stage of the journey in these two chapters, the climax that everything's been moving toward. What's God's desire for people who are enrolled in His community and who have understanding of His Word? Let's read Nehemiah 8, 9 and 12, 9 through 12, and then see what it says. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, we won't read it, but this is followed by their celebration of the Feast of the Booths in the rest of the chapter. It's a seven-day feast in which it says in verse 17 that there was very great rejoicing. We can capture the final stage of this progression of God's people with the word joy. Joy. Picture the scene that we just read. This meeting has been going on from early morning to midday. So this is four to six hours of hearing the word read and these other guys helping you understand it. Aren't you glad that we don't use that as our template for the Sunday morning gathering? <laughs> six hours. They'd fall out of a third-story window like, uh, what's his name? I forgot. Eutychus. Yeah, in Acts. Anyway. We don't do six hours, but they were. They were doing six hours, standing out there, listening, hearing, understanding. But as the hours were going by and this word is being read and made clear to them, somewhere in that process, they began to be grieved over what they heard. They grieved so much that they wept openly. It became such a widespread reaction that the Levites who were dispersed among the crowd had to calm them down, had to quiet them down because this is getting loud. I have to say that in 26 years of preaching, that's never happened to me. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> I don't know what we would do if like two-thirds of the room was sobbing. I think we'd call the deacons and we'd say, get tissues and provide comfort, kind of circulate. So that's our policy now, okay? <laughs> if that happens, if there's weeping. Why were they weeping? Well, this passage doesn't say, but apparently, as they were hearing God's word read, they were coming under conviction of sin. Chapter 9 is going to fill in for us what they had on their heart, what they needed to confess, what was going on there. That chapter is about another gathering three weeks later, chapter 9 is, in which the people confess their sins at length, and not just their recent sins, but their sins as a people going all the way back to the founding of their nation after being delivered out of Egypt when the law of Moses was first given. It's like, okay, it's just time to like clean house. Pastor Todd is going to preach on that next week, and he promises that it has something to do with Christmas. So come back next week and find out the connection to Christmas and Christ's birth. I know it's there. In this gathering, they were weeping over the difference between the beauty of what God intended for their lives and what they were actually experiencing. Now you would think that Ezra and Nehemiah, these godly leaders in charge of the meeting, would be all about that would just let that weeping play out into an extended time of confession. After all, the leader said, this day is holy to the Lord your God. This day that Leviticus 23 commanded as a holy convocation. What could be more appropriate for a holy day 
than to weep and mourn over your sins, right? Isn't that the defining mark of a people who want to live holy lives? We might think that is, that is the definition of holiness. Well, grieving over sins is definitely something that members of God's people will do as they understand God's Word. If you've ever read it and felt conviction, you know what I'm talking about. But holiness is not limited to that. Rejoicing and happiness is also what's to characterize God's holy people. In fact, it should be the dominant characteristic of God's people. When Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites hear the grieving and the weeping, they don't say, that's not legitimate. It is legitimate, but they do say, today is not the day for that. Today, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for or because this day is holy to the Lord your God. It's because this is a holy day that you should eat good food and have good wine and make sure others join in it with you. Yes, there's sin in your life. There are things to confess and grieve over. There's going to be a time to confess and grieve over those things. But don't miss what else you heard in this four or six-hour reading of God's Word, we also heard about His goodness and His mercy. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And in evidence of that, think about where you're standing today, O Israel. You're standing in the city of God, not Babylon. He's brought you here out of exile. You're standing in front of the city wall that you just built, even though you had opposition every day against this project, but the opposition didn't win. Yes, there's also a famine going on, but you've been fed. Yes, your nation is ruled by a foreign king, Artaxerxes, but you have a higher king, the Lord God himself, and it is by his decree that you are here, and that you have a future and a hope. So rejoice, O Israel. Or as the chief speaker says, who appears to be Nehemiah at this point, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. As you face your own sins and the trials of this world, the joy of the Lord will strengthen you to keep moving forward with hope. This is also the encouragement for believers in Christ today. If you're enrolled in the heavenly Jerusalem, and as you get understanding of God from the Scriptures, you will experience a similar effect as the Jews did that day in the assembly. You'll experience conviction of sin, because we're never, never completely rid of sin in this life. Sinlessness awaits the life to come. But God's intention is not that we stay there in a state of mourning. His intention is that we have joy in our salvation. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. When the Ethiopian eunuch believed the gospel that was told to him by Philip, it says he went his way rejoicing. 
That's the natural reaction to hearing God's word, to hearing the good news of rescue. Paul in prison said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice while he's in prison. It can be done. George Mueller, the saintly man who cared, cared for hundreds of orphans back in the 1800s, he said, the first order of business in every day is to make my soul happy in God. <laughs> we might have gotten into our heads somewhere that holiness and rejoicing don't go together. <clears throat> we might think holy people are like the people in the old-time black and white photos. You know, they never smiled. <laughs> Just go dig one out of a drawer somewhere. <laughs> I think it had something to do with long exposures, and so you choose a facial expression that you can maintain. All right, you can't maintain a smile, I guess. But that's what they looked like, right? We think, well, that maybe that's what holiness is. That's those sober, intentional people. Well, holy people celebrate. Holy people celebrate the goodness of God. They're happy people. The Lord says to us this morning, don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, what exactly is the joy of the Lord so that we can be strengthened by it? Well, it's first of all the joy of the Lord, meaning it's first of all the Lord's own joy that He has within Himself. And as we come to know God more and more through His Word and through His faithfulness in our lives, then that becomes our joy as well. His joy becomes our joy. Jesus spoke like that in John 15, 11. He said to His disciples, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What is Jesus' joy? Well, it consists for sure in his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit that has been forever, before time even. Certainly it's in that, but don't miss the fact that his joy is also his joy in saving us and having us with him. Hebrews 12.2 says, It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. The joy of rescuing his bride, the church, from her sins. It was his joy at redeeming a people to be with him forever in the new Jerusalem. Believe it or not, God takes joy in you personally if you're part of his community through faith in Christ. Hebrews 12 just builds on the statements God made in the Old Testament. Listen to a few of those statements. Psalm 149.4, For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. In Jeremiah 32, 41, God says, I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. 
God has great joy in his people. And as we grasp that, that great love, that steadfast love, that I won't let you go kind of love, then it makes us strong. It gives us joy. And joy gives us strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's the joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, according to 1 Peter. It's inexpressible because it isn't based on being sinless. These guys were supposed to rejoice, though they were grieving over their sin. They knew they had sin. It's not based on the sin. It's based on something better than the sin, or being free from it even. It's inexpressible because it's also not based on good circumstances. They didn't have good circumstances in a lot of ways, and yet they could be joyful. It's joy that's above our sins, and it's out of reach of our circumstances because its source is God's grace to sinners through the saving work of Christ. That's the joy of the Lord that makes us strong for facing everything in life. So break out the champagne. Break out the good, the good stuff. Break, break out the, the meal, the feast. Have somebody over and rejoice in God and His promises and the membership in His eternal family. That we can do even from prison. Paul did. Let me close with the question, where does your joy come from today? Are you looking for it in escaping into entertainment? Are you looking for it in good circumstances? Are you looking for it in trying to be a better person? None of those things will do it. They can feel good in the moment, but they don't give you strength. Our joy has to come from knowing that in Christ, our names are enrolled in the Lamb's book of life. And from knowing God through His Word and remembering His mercies to us, which are new every morning. So friends, let the joy of the Lord be your strength. That's the good news of the great joy that the angel announced at the birth of Christ. It's what He came to bring. Let's lay hold of it. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength this Christmas season and beyond. Let's pray. What great things you have for us. Oh, oh, that we would have eyes to see it. Help us, Lord, to be attentive, not distracted. And this is a season of distraction big time. Oh, Lord, help us to see the greatest joy, the greatest treasure, our greatest hope is you. It doesn't matter what happens in our circumstances of life. We have eternal life. We have your abundant life through Christ. Oh, fill us up with that again today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, respond in singing this prayer that God would speak to us through his word uh, for conviction and obedience, but also that we would be able to grasp the highs of his plans for us and experience joy.
as we come. 